and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast of the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. I'm Paul Newman, EIA's Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at the need for the world to face up to climate change and to do something about it before it's too late. Engulfed in the coronavirus crisis, it's been all too easy to take our eye off the ball and forget that the real and pressing threat of climate change is still very much with us, and that it's not going anywhere. In conversation today about the problem and what we can do about it are Fanula Wall Ravens, our senior climate campaigner, and Tim Grabiel, a senior lawyer working on our climate and ocean campaigns. Uh, as well as looming and potentially irreversible climate change tipping points, which we're fast approaching, they'll be talking about the vital importance of action to tackle refrigerant hydrofluorocarbon greenhouse gases, more commonly known as HFCs, and they'll be asking whether we're really heading for catastrophe. Welcome both. Thanks, Paul. It's nice to be here. Finn, to get us started, could you briefly tell us what HFCs are, um, where they're found and why they're such a problem? Yeah, sure. Uh, HFCs are basically used as refrigerant gases in air conditioners and fridges. Um, we often overlook how important cooling in, is in our lives. And I think, in fact, about 70% of the food in our supermarkets has actually been through the cool chain at some point. Um, HFCs were actually introduced uh, as a solution to the problem of the ozone layer, which we all know was caused by CFCs, which were eating up the ozone, creating a hole in the ozone layer, which was leading to skin cancer. So along came the F-gas producers with a lovely solution, and they said, here we have some HFCs that don't destroy the ozone layer, but they are very potent greenhouse gases, and they've set up a whole new set of problems for us. Um, yeah, so basically... They're used in air conditioners and fridges. They can also be used in heat pumps. And actually, um, certain governments actually give renewable heat incentives to actually encourage the uptake of heat pumps. So we're going to see demand for the type of equipment that uses HFCs rise a lot in the future. Um, in fact, I think I saw a pretty eye-watering statistic the other day that uh, the total number of air conditioning units on the planet is set to triple over the next 30 years. So that's going to reach 5.6 billion air conditioning units by 2050. And if you look at that in terms of sales, there's about 10 air conditioning units sold every second between now and 2050. So there's some pretty eye-watering statistics. That's a very scary figure indeed. Yeah. And then we also have to think about the climate impact of, of these units. So of course we have the, the energy used. So Tim, in your hot Paris apartment, when it gets really hot in the summer, what do you do? <laughs> Turn up the AC. And of course, turning up air conditioning units, of course not, you wouldn't be using no, AC. Well, well, You'd well, open well, a window. What we actually do is we get some, uh, we get some towels and we wet them and then we put them on our forehead, or at least my kids do because they're the ones complaining. Very nice. Well, maybe maybe some of your neighbours might be cranking up the AC. And certainly what that will do is result in increased energy demand. So we have a cooling, a climate footprint from the energy demand from the cooling equipment, unless, of course, the energy is renewable. But we also have another really big climate footprint coming from this type of equipment. And th that comes from the HFC gases that are inside the equipment. Now, these gases leak out in various different ways. They could leak out when the equipment is being serviced. Um, also, they leak out a lot at the end of life. So when you dispose of your equipment. Um, yes, in Europe, we have laws aimed at ensuring that equipment is recycled properly. But the sad reality is that that just isn't happening. Um, I saw a, 
a really interesting statistic the other day, a bit of a eye-opener statistic by Project Drawdown, which said that addressing refrigerants through both refrigerant management, but also tackling uh, avoiding the use of HFCs in the first place is actually one of the biggest climate mitigation opportunities we've got. And it could save us a whopping 110 gigatons, that's billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent between now and 2050. And that's over three times our annual greenhouse gas emissions. That is impressive. And that's why they're called super greenhouse gases. Do you have any of the numbers on their global warming potentials, some of the more common ones? Um, yeah, actually, it's quite interesting when we look at how they're measured in terms of their global warming potential. We often uh, actually use a 100-year time frame to measure the global warming potential of greenhouse gases. But this doesn't really ac accurately portray what's going on in the atmosphere with HFCs. So as you mentioned, Tim... HFCs are short-lived climate pollutants. So they're only really around in the atmosphere for about 20 years. And measuring their climate impact over a 100-year period, period seriously mutes. It underplays what's going on in the atmosphere in the near term. So if you take a... Um, HFC 32 is often marketed as a climate-friendly HFC because it has a, a, a lower GWP than many of the common HFCs. So it has a global warming potential of about 677. But if you look at the global warming potential of this HFC 32 over 20 years, that rockets to 2,430. So clearly, these kind of gases are actually climate bombs that are doing their damage in the atmosphere over the next couple of decades, right at the time when we need to be avoiding dangerous tipping points. Well, that's the thing, right? So we have a 20-year time frame impact that's disproportionate to how they're being presented to the public at large. And this, these next 20 years, 30 years are critical for avoiding tipping points. So the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also known as the IPCC, introduced this concept of tipping points into the climate system in the climate system about, about two decades ago. And so what they said is there are these temperatures, thresholds that exist, that once you exceed them, they're going to cause some irreversible large-scale change in some system. And there are several different tipping points. Um, for example, permafrost, the melting of the permafrost. So that's that's one that that actually makes me quite concerned. So permafrost covers a quarter of the land in north in the northern hemisphere and canada and russia for example have a lot of permafrost so when it's permanently frosted it serves as a cap as a as a lid that keeps in huge amounts of methane which are stored sort of within it and underneath it and it keeps them into the ground now methane is another super greenhouse gas with the near-term impact like hfcs um that is disproportionate it is 86 times more potent than co2 over a 20-year time frame and it's, it basically forms when organic matter decays in the absence of oxygen. So anyways, we have this permafrost and it's sitting here as a little cap and a lid. And then as the planet warms though, it melts and starts to thaw. And in the process, releasing the methane that's trapped within. And the problem with this tipping point, similar to, for example, another tipping point like dieback of the Amazon rainforest. The problem with this tipping point is that once you cross it, it then sort of creates a negative feedback loop in that it creates this vicious cycle. So as permafrost melts, methane is released. As methane is released, the planet warms more. As the planet warms more so, there's more permafrost thawing. 
And so it just kind of creates this vicious cycle where it just keeps contributing gases. So I guess um, it's kind of like a juggernaut that once you set going down the hill, once it gets to a certain speed, it's not going to stop. Yes, it's 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 a very scary tipping point, um, and it's you know it could it could it could start uh, an abrupt climate change that would just just sort of uncontrollably runs off into some degrees uh, in, uh, temperature increase. So it's it's quite problematic. And the thing about it is, if you look at uh, the Canadian permafrost, so we have these models that make predictions on when we're supposed to cross these these tipping points and at what degrees and whatnot. If you look at the modeling we are seeing that the canadian permafrost is thawing 70 years ahead of what was predicted yikes yeah so this is just one tipping point i mentioned that there's also others like amazon the dieback of the amazon rainforest uh there's ocean acidification there's disruption of the gulf stream there's the melting of the himalayan tibetan glaciers which provide fresh water to millions if not billions of people and so we're 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 finding ourselves in a situation where we need to avoid these 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 tipping points but yet the warming that we're feeling and the warming that we're headed towards are within the probability range of passing them so yeah we're we're all kind of fresh in the middle of the pandemic and coming off or coming off of a confinement um but you know it when i first started seeing those curves during uh the description of the coronavirus and how we needed to flatten the curve i kept reflecting on tipping points it's a very similar concept. Uh, we need to flatten the curve. What we need to do is we need to we need to get the temperature curve below the tipping point line. So you know, we, you know there's there there's also no substitute for early action, which is something else that we've noticed in uh, with the pandemic. If you lose those precious few weeks through inaction, then those are fatal. That's fatal. It just sort of spirals out of control. It's the same thing with climate change. We have these years right now where we need to take action, and if we lose these precious years right now and not taking action we are going to find ourselves again with a situation that's uncontrollable and so it was quite interesting to go through the experience and then yet you know at the same time working on climate change and thinking about tipping points um, and to see the parallels between the two i think what's quite interesting is we have an opportunity for early and bold action on hfcs and we know that these are short-lived climate forces that are going to do their damage over the next couple of decades. So action we can take on HFCs could help us avoid some of these climate tipping points. But of course, we have to think about what are the alternatives if we're not using HFCs. Um, and I think, you know, the first alternative has to be to us, do we really need cooling? And I think your point, Tim, about saying when it's hot, why don't you just put a cold flannel on your face is a really good idea. You know, we're avoiding the use of mechanized cooling. Um, I think though the reality is that cooling is part of our lives and, you know, we do need mechanized cooling. It helps avoid a lot of food waste amongst other things. Um, so what are those alternative refrigerants that we could be using? And we're seeing a lot of promise from a group of gases called natural refrigerants, which were actually used before the advent of CFCs. And common gases, uh, common natural refrigerants include uh, hydrocarbons, ammonia, and carbon dioxide. And yet carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. A lot of people say, how can CO2 be part of the solution? And I think the point is that they're actually used in very small amounts in these uh, refrigeration units. So yes, it is a useful climate friendly refrigerant gas. Obviously you do not want to be pumping out lots of CO2 into the atmosphere. As we know, this is a greenhouse gas as well. Um, so yeah, clearly they're promising from a climate perspective 
but but natural refrigerants have had their challenges. Um, they do require service technicians to be well trained and they require respect and, and they require a system change. People tend to prefer to stick with what they know and you know, the industry, the F-gas industry and all the products around it are very popular and we, we have a status quo bias. We don't want to embrace uh, something new. And I remember when I started working on this campaign about 12 years ago, we looked at the biggest source of HFC emissions in the UK and found that it was actually coming from supermarket refrigeration. And we actually found an eye-watering statistic that up to about 40% of a retailer's carbon footprint was coming from leaking HFCs. And that's even before the use of energy was accounted for. Um, so doing what we do best, EIA shone, shone a spotlight on it and uh, called on retailers to stop using these HFCs. And then we set up an annual survey to actually monitor their progress. And I remember being in meetings with uh, the CSR managers of the supermarkets and they told me a long list of reasons why they simply couldn't use natural refrigerants. Um, but it was really interesting. I think by shining a spotlight on the issue, we were able to get them to start investing in this alternative cooling technology. And actually very quickly, we saw them begin to really embrace the use of natural refrigerants um, to such an extent that I think over 30,000 supermarkets today are now using natural refrigerants. And actually by 2014, the use of natural refrigerants had grown so much that the EU adopted laws against the use of HFCs in supermarkets. So and we even have a database called cooltechnologies.org, which, which uh, gives details of all the different HFC-free refrigerants and technologies being used across the world. So I remember when I came to EIA, the chilling facts reports were already uh, a thing that we were doing. And I, I, I remember running around uh, on EIA's behalf in 2014 with all the information that we had created about the supermarkets, about the ones that were being leaders, about how it was feasible. And exactly that contributed to the ban that we saw that was adopted in 2014. There's a lot of good things that came out of that experience, out of the F-gas regulation experience, uh, you know, we did get some, we get some bans, we get some strengthening of a lot of measures. We did get an HFC phase down, which at the time uh, was, you know, beyond the imagination of, of the global community. They adopted it a few years later, but the, e the EU went ahead and, 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 and spearheaded uh, efforts in that regard. But one of the things that I regret is that we didn't get a phase down schedule that was as ambitious as as stringent as it should have been. Uh, there was a there was a there was a lot of lobbyists around uh, trying to argue about how we needed them. We couldn't make the transition in all these different sectors, and so what they did is they created a little bit too much space in the HFC phase down. And I feel like we've lost several years just on 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 you know on 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 on, on that missed opportunity. But we do have an opportunity next year in 2021 when the FGAS regulation gets revised as part of the European Union's renewed efforts to meet. To, to, to be more ambitious by 2030, we do have an opportunity to ratchet that down even further. And so that's something that we absolutely have to be involved in. Uh, it needs to be an absolute priority because again, these are super pollutants. They have a near-term impact that's higher than other gases and they're, they're needed to bend the curve, to flatten the curve so we can avoid the tipping points. But we not only have that possibility at the European Union level, we also have it at the global level. So in 2016, we were all very busy uh, with the adoption of the Kigali Amendment under the Montreal Protocol. 
So the Kigali Amendment took this notion that we're going to phase down HFCs and they, they, it adopted it at the, at the global level. And so there's different phase down schedules for developing and developed countries. Anyway, it, it got adopted in 2016. It came into effect in 2019. We now, with the passage of time, are starting to realize that it too has a phase down schedule that's too forgiving. So what it's going to do is it's going to eliminate the worst of the worst of the HFCs, but they're still the worst and they're still the, yeah, you know, I slightly think, less than worst, but not good. Yeah. So I was just going to say, I think actually developing countries don't actually begin to phase down HFCs till, is it like till the end of the decade? Is that right, Tim? Till it's until, well, it depends on the grouping that they're in. So there are two groups for the developing countries. There's a group A and a group B or group one and two. And uh, the first set of countries, which is the majority, start in 2024. The other countries start towards the end of the decade. It feels like we're kind of allowing an HFC yeah, phase I mean, in <sighs> in developing countries. We, I mean, to some extent, don't we want to try and ensure that developing countries get the cleanest technologies possible rather than get dumped with all the old HFC technologies that we don't want? That's exactly what we need to do. And, and, and the way that we can do that, one, is by sending a clear signal and not giving them so much opportunity to use HFCs. So absolutely, the schedule, I think, is a little forgiving. But also what we need to do is we need to daylight these technologies. And daylighting them means having a front runner like the European Union or the United Kingdom as well. Um, bring the technologies to market. Uh, help get uh, uh, scales of production up so that we get economies of scale so that the prices go down so they become more affordable. These front runners, uh, they, 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 uh, they create the modules for the training programs that help the technicians that can then sort of be shared uh, with, with other countries. Um, so it, it, it's all kind of, they all play together. You can't, you can't get this ambitious action on a global level unless you have certain regions or countries being ambitious themselves within their own borders. And so that's kind of the situation we're in right now. Yeah, I think as well, we, we also need Europe to show leadership when it comes to tackling HFC climate crime. Um, as you said, we had a, uh, a leading FGAS regulation, which went ahead of the rest of the world. But we saw that as we cut the amount of HFCs that was legally allowed on European markets, this drove the price of HFCs in Europe and created incentives for smugglers to profit by, by flooding our European markets with illegal HFCs. Um, Unfortunately, we European uh, regulators at the time set up a system that was open to abuse. I mean, even currently, not all customs points actually have access to the register, which will tell them whether an importer is actually registered to be an importer. And then secondly, even if an importer goes over their allowance, customs don't have the power to stop that importer because the system is a post hoc annual reporting based system so again we need european leaders to show to show uh, to develop a system that's actually going to be robust and develop a world class system which is looking at hfc licensing on a per shipment real time basis in order to tackle climate crime because hfc climate crime is often overlooked it's not perhaps thought of as very serious but flooding European markets with illegal HFCs not only avoids investment in green alternatives here in Europe, but 
these these uh, profiteers often undercut legitimate businesses, and I'm pretty sure they're not paying their taxes either. Either so they're undermining businesses and governments. So it's something that we really need to tackle, and and we have this new FGAS review coming up. So that's definitely another opportunity to deal with that. And I, I think we've done a lot of good work in exposing the illegal trade, and I know that there are companies as well uh, who have been working to to expose illegal trade, and there's custom authorities that have been trained, and the European Commission has been trying. And I think what we've been successful in doing is getting the policymakers to realize that, yeah, we need to fix it. That illegal trade without some additional controls is going to proliferate. And as we start to ratchet down this phase down, we're going to have more incentives for people to put uh, chemicals on the black market. Um, I'm confident that the European Commission will make a proposal that will help create that system where we can sort of uh, you know, ensure the integrity of the phase down more so. I'm confident they're going to do that, but you know, again, we got to be there because if we if we're not there, who knows what's going to happen? Um, and then if we can get that system right here in Europe, I think we have the opportunity to again uh, transpose it globally, uh, because this problem is being encountered here only because you know we here in Europe have acted earlier than the others, so we are the first ones to sort of run into this problem. Um, but that's just my sense. Uh, again, none of this happens without uh, people on civil society demanding action, engaging with policymakers. Uh, I think we've done a lot on that front, but I, I, um, fingers crossed, um, guardedly optimistic that we're going to get something by way of a commission proposal to address it. Fingers crossed. Let's hope our yeah. leaders, European and global leaders, accept that they they can undo the mistakes of the past by being bold this time around to help protect our yeah. planet's health and help avoid those dangerous climate tipping points you've been telling us about, Tim. Yeah, I, I, like, I, like, to, I like to reflect back sometimes on, on the arguments and the conversations we were having um, because you know, it, in certain ways, the, the, the things that we were saying then are ever more relevant now. And it gives me that, um, that additional desire to go through and forcefully say and push through our vision because we're at, we're at a point now where, where we can't lose any more time. We can't lose any more time. We had some things adopted earlier, uh, almost a decade ago, uh, that have done some good things, but not nearly enough. And as the science has developed, we've seen that it's so important that we get it right. And, and, and right now is the time to get it right. Yeah. He's hoping. Okay, uh, Finn, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, if you've enjoyed this, this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eiainternational.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there.